You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In most families, there is a favorite child. Parents deny it, and maybe they truly don't see it, but it's obvious to the children. Unfairness bothers children greatly. It's hard to always come in second. It's also hard to be the favorite. Earned or unearned, the favorite is a burdensome thing to be. I was our mother's favorite child. Lowell was our father's. I loved our father as much as our mother, but I loved Lowell best of all. Fern loved our mother best. Lowell loved Fern more than he loved me. When I lay out these facts, they seem essentially benign. Something here for everyone. More than enough to go around. Karen Joy Fowler is the author of Sarah Canary, the Jane Austen Book Club in Wits End. Her recent collection of short stories is What I Didn't See. Her new novel is We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Thank you, Rick. Karen, at one point in this book, the narrator, Rosemary, uses the phrase, in retrospect. And I think that's an interesting phrase because it brings to mind this idea of telling a story of memory and telling a story in memory. And this story partakes of both. And I think you've done a very interesting job of combining those two. Thank you. I... um I, my narrator, as she tells the story, is nearing 40, and the most important events in the story happened before she was five, so that was something um, that I had to give a lot of thought to, trying to, trying to remember not only what I remember at 60 about five, but what I might have remembered at 40 about five, and, um, and, and so, you know, a lot of the important information in the story does take place in a kind of slippery reality where she remembers things one way. Sometimes people in her family remember things, the same things, but quite differently. And um, I think uh, I mean there to be enough authority that you, um, that you believe in most of her memories. But, um, but yes, it seemed only realistic to me that they would be partial and sometimes incorrect, and um, and that putting them together would be a struggle. And and there are things that she has willfully forgotten as well. Rosemary's voice is so wonderful and so much fun to read. It's a very odd combination of almost deadpan humor and a dry scientific vision of the world combined with these intense and deep emotions and yet you bring it all off with this great prose style that you create could you talk about creating that prose style did it pour from the tip of your pen Uh, one of the things that was so pleasurable about writing in rosemary's voice was the idea that um that her vocabulary had been informed by being part of these early language experiments so we're often told in writing workshops, and I often tell people in writing workshops to uh, leave off the $100 words and try to keep a more natural vocabulary. So it was, it was just great fun to throw that advice completely to the winds and 
have a narrator whose vocabulary is quite preposterous in some ways. And people who have already seen the book um, have asked me on occasion to define some word that I've used in it, and already I don't have a clue. I had to look it up. I had to... uh, I had to do deep research in order to have Rosemary's vocabulary, and it's already gone. And it will be tricky, I think, reading certain sections aloud because um, I have no idea how to pronounce some of these words either. It's so much fun to read. And one of the things that was interesting is that the undependable narrator is is, its a well-known narrative tool, and Rosemary is to a degree an undependable narrator, but she knows she's undependable, yes. and that's the interesting. That's so much fun. She is she is doing her best, to be honest, and um, a lot of some of her undependability just involves the sequence with which she tells you things, um, choosing to tell you some lesser, some things of lesser importance um, that that you don't understand properly until she's gotten further into the book within. The fact that she is completely controlling the narrative and is very aware of what she's telling you and why and when she's telling it to you and why. You know, within those constraints, she is is trying to be ex- extremely and particularly honest about what happened and what her role in it was and, and how she feels about it now. Another thing I might say about her voice that, that was interesting and... Um, uh, that I was trying to do is that she is in a peculiar position of um, not knowing where she sort of falls on some kind of continuum of normal human behavior. And so I think, you know, we all question ourselves from time to time and uh, ask ourselves if what we're feeling is normal or rational or, um, you know, something that should be quickly hidden away in the sock drawer. But um, but Rosemary has those questions with uh, more valid concerns. One of the things I think that this book does extremely well is give us a vision of America at a couple of different times through the last oh, 40 years or so. I know it's terrible to think that the 1970s is now a historical novel. The 1990s are historical. <laughs> it's, it's frightening. Uh, but I think you do a great job of that and, and also of giving us a vision of just the core standard American family. And I'd like you to talk about creating the family dynamics. Uh, Rosemary Cook, my, again, my narrator, is the same age as my daughter, which helps me to remember, you know, what we were watching on television and what we were thinking and uh, what was going on politically at that time. Um, Otherwise, I tend to create a character of a certain age and then lose track of that fact, and suddenly her memories seem much more suitable to the 1950s when I grew up. So it's a trick I use to keep me remembering the right period of time, uh, even when I'm talking about a childhood. I'm always very interested in the larger political context, and it it also helps me, you know, because I generally am paying attention to those things as they unfold in real time. It helps me remember who I was and um, who the family was, my family was, 
when those events were occurring as well. The, the dynamics in the family, um, however, are things that I did mostly have to make up. The family does not resemble mine much at all, except for the fact that uh, my father was a psychologist, and the father in the book does very much resemble my father. But the older brother, the, the anger of the older brother, um, which uh, eventually sort of shapes a lot of the family dynamic, is not something that I have actual experience with. And, you know, I just has, had to be asking myself how a family that has betrayed one of its children so thoroughly can continue to function as a family um, when everyone is complicit in some way in that betrayal. You know, one of the things that really struck me about this book and about a number of books I've read of late is the impact of disappearance on our lives as opposed to murder, as opposed to um, divorce. It just when somebody disappears uh, for whatever the reason, it's a really, it has a very peculiar effect on those who are left behind. And I think you capture this really well in this book in a variety of manners. I, yes, you know, I've been thinking, um, to take us pretty far afield probably, I've been thinking about that a lot with reference to the three women who were just rescued in Cleveland, that, um, you know, we would like to think of this as a happy ending to a terrible, terrible story, but of course it's, it's, um, it's not the ending, and everybody has to, the women themselves have to figure out how to put together lives when they missed so many crucial years that would have gone into creating personalities and relationships for them and their families have to deal with the fact that whoever has come home however much they still love them and however much the original person may still be there also the original person is not still there and the family will have to reshape in some way that I expect will not at all be easy um, so yes I think um, I think disappearances are are very uh, eerie in a, as you've said, in a very distinct way. I don't know that I have a word for it, but that reappearances can also be um, joyful but challenging. Uncanny. Uncanny. That's <laughs> <laughs> the word I think that uh, captures what in disappearances have on us. The way the story is told in this book is really fascinating. At the very beginning, your character informs us just right out she's going to start in the middle and I think that uh, plotting and layering this book uh, must have been a, a challenge for you and I think it's beautifully handled I'd like you to talk about uh, putting together the chronology of this book in the actual timeline in the world as it existed and then going back and reassembling it and taking it apart and telling it turning it into a story well, first of all, thank you for liking it. I expect I expect it to be a little controversial. I, you know, I the po worst possible reaction is for the reader to feel manipulated, which seems to me all too possible, and yet, you know, certainly not my intention. I think I think that that starting in the middle to to me is being true to my narrator, that I, that I just, I don't picture her as having been able to start 
in any other place. It, she really has to ease into the story. Um, and it, the idea to do it um, really came from my picture of her as a child and as a, just as a, a child who talked so much that it was exhausting to the people around her. And, and um, so I, I started off just with that, that very small detail and as I wrote the book, realized that it was really a key to who she was and to how she would tell the story. So I, I also, I guess, started in the middle in that way. I, there's one point when I, I think her father tells her, when you think of three things to say, pick one and say only that. I think that's such an interesting observation and a, a strange thing for a father to tell a child. <laughs> Well, that one I did not make up, actually. That one, my daughter, who was also an extremely talkative child, we we all have memories of um, the dinner table and her father and I slumped in exhaustion and and not responding anymore, you know, having sort of fallen face forward into our food, um, watching her uh, talk to her hands instead because we had... It turned out, in the end, not to be appropriate dinner table, n- not to be keeping up with the dinner table conversation. So she told me at one point um, that she um, had decided that she talked a lot and that she was gonna, um, she was gonna, uh, that it was her, her policy, her 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 plan that she would only say one in three things she thought of to say. But she told me later that it didn't work out very well because um, it seemed to her nobody else was really filling the space she was leaving. So in the end, she would pick her favorite, but then there would be enough silence that she would think that possibly people would be interested in the second favorite as well. One of the things that I think is so wonderful about reading this book is it's full of incident and full of action. Yet the way you tell the story, it's a it's a novel of revelation where what's truly exciting is getting to know the people and finding out what who they are and what what has happened, as opposed to a plot where you go from A to B and then you find out C and then somebody's chasing you to D and then at the end you all end up at F and somebody's got a gun. <laughs> I, I wish I had just written that down. I would have my next novel. Well, again, you know, starting in the middle actually means that we don't get to certain revelations until later in the book. Um, but it, it also is in some ways the beginning of her. She has um, she has spent many years not thinking of these things, trying very hard not to think of things that happened in her past. and And so the book, which does in fact begin in the middle also begins at the moment when these things begin to come back to her and back at her in certain ways so that the revelations involve partly things that she is working up the nerve to say aloud um, but also partly things that she has forgotten and will only remember as she begins this process of trying to talk for the first time about things that happened to her as a child and about her family. I do a lot of rewriting. I do a lot of revising. 
and this book was no different, but I don't remember playing around with the timeline very much. I think, you know, I started the book on page one, as I always do, put the things in where it seemed like they should go, and um, I don't think that I changed much of that, and I don't think that I had too much of it planned. I did move very slowly on the book, so I was I was planning as I went, maybe more than usual. The book has, I've been thinking about the book now. I can be very specific because my daughter gave me the idea for it on New Year's Eve 2000, so I've been thinking of the book for 12 to 13 years now. It's been in gestation. It's for been, yes. I've written, in the meantime, I've written two other novels, so I'm not claiming that I've been working on it that long, but I've been thinking about it that long. It's it's done well by virtue of the way. It's such a fabulous story, and your sense of story in this novel is so phenomenally powerful and involving, and I'd like you to talk about the different kinds of stories, the way we have memory, uh, the way we remember things versus the power of a story that seems like a little bit better way to remember things. <laughs> Sometimes the story, family stories will get changed by virtue of the fact that it's a better story than what actually happened. I think that happens all the time. And I think it happens with people knowing it happens, but I also think it happens with people not even aware that they have improved on it. I was just inter- another tangent, but... My sister-in-law has gotten very, very interested in genealogy, and so suddenly, um, uh, you know, they, she and my brother have had the the DNA test to see, you know, what our ethnic background is, and she's been chasing down family history, uh, both for her family and for our family, and um, and I have been talking to other people about it who um, are also. Um, either doing or seeing someone else do similar projects for their family. And one thread that is just constant in what I'm being told is how the family stories have just turned out not to be true at all. You know, apparently the family didn't arrive on the Mayflower. Apparently, you know, we um, had for years been told that we had an ancestor who died in the Civil War. And I, I can tell you stories about him, details about him, how he died, what his name was, you know. But um, and now we learn that the family didn't come over until considerably after the, the war. So, you know, who, who was the fabulous in the family who made up these stories? Who is the fabulous in, in your family making up these stories? And now I've <laughs> completely forgotten what your question was. But, you know, one of the things um, about this book and about the way it's told and, and about uh, that, that relates very much to thinking about stories and, um, and controlling stories is that this is the first uh, first-person narrator I've done in quite some time. And that was um, hard to get used to at the beginning of the book as I was beginning to write it because I hadn't done it for a while but enormously powerful in the end because it did allow because my narrator is um, completely controlling what you learn and when you learn it and and um, and in many ways how you are to think about the story that she is telling you so um, 
that was more fun than I expected it to be. I don't know if I'll do it in the next book. Uh, I think I probably won't, but probably in the book after that, I will be ready for that power again. I hope I use that power for good and not for evil. However you use it will be good reading, (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) You know, one of the things that interests me is that uh, while I think I might have a, a disagree with you a bit in that the character is controlling the story, I think sometimes it seems like she says she's revising her memories, that I think that it seems to a certain degree that one of the interesting aspects of this book is the way that we can conceal our own stories from ourselves, that we can know something, we can know all the details, we can have every single word and aspect of an incident that happened to us trapped in our memories, but also at the same time be completely and blithely able to put on blinders and filter it down to just a few details that are often generally irrelevant to what happened. I I don't disagree with anything that you've said. Yeah, I think I think you know, one of the well, as long as we're talking historical in the 1970s, one of the great revelations of um our lives has been the understanding that memory is such an unreliable um, space in in our heads and that, um, you know, all of the social experiments about how easy it is to talk somebody into believing they remember something they don't remember and how unreliable we now know um, eyewitness accounts of events are has left us, I think, just in in a very... uh, uncomfortable place is if you're not basing your actions on on memories or if your memories are not good data what's left your family (laughs) to remind you of what really happened yes and in this case i thought it was interesting that we know rosemary's name and we know her sister's name, and we know her imaginary friend's name, and we know her brother's name, Rose, but we don't ever learn her father's or mother's name, do we? No, we don't, because they function in the book just as a father and a mother. They've got, uh, of course, professional reputations to uphold, both of them, but... um, That's an interesting decision. Uh, When did you make that going in? Is that... Again, I think for me that was just part of it being a first-person narrator, that... um, I don't think of my parents as Cleet and Joy, and so um, neither does she think of her parents. That's a wow. That's a uh, that's a seems obvious once you say it. <laughs> I also brain. spent a long time um, on something that I expect is far less visible, which is when I say my mother and father, and when I say our mother and father in the book. Um, in almost every case. I made a very careful choice. Um, wow, that's so interesting. I know that. <laughs> You're right. You're right. When you think back about it, that's, boy. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the things that's nice about this book is there's a lot of, uh, it's clear that you've taken a lot of care in the writing of the book. There is about 10, 
fantastic. You want to write them down sentences on any one page. Oh, thank you. And, and there's also, too, for a book that has a lot of pathos in it, there's a lot of humor, too. It's There are parts that I think I was found myself laughing out loud at a lot of it and a lot, just a lot of your uh, sense of humor. Could you talk about uh, creating a, and keeping a sense of humor through this book with events that are often somewhat dire? I think that... Um that in creating the character of Rosemary, that this is probably, you know, well, I shouldn't even say probably, that this is something she shares with me, that my um, coping mechanism for things that are painful is often to um, to, to find the humor in them, um, or, or if, if not in them, in something tangentially related to them. Um, the way the humor in this book is supposed to function is that um, that the book is supposed to be quite funny for quite some time, but that at a certain point it stops being funny towards the end. I think there is not the same kind of humor um, when she has gotten closer to the bone in terms of what her story actually is. But I find as a reader that um, although there are many, many books that I love, that the books that I reread are almost always funny, that, that in order for me to go back, there has to at least be um, something funny in it. And I, I haven't really stopped to ask myself why that is exactly. Because these two can be books that are actually about very dire things, but... Um, but I read them because they're funny, or I reread them because they're funny. And the books that um, just can take my breath away with the the tragedy of it, um, I I will love those books every bit as much. But I won't pick them up again. Too yeah. too hard, too hard on me. This book deals with the way we treat animals and and how the relationship between us and the other species. And so I think it's really fascinating the way you have created the netherworld of the Animal Liberation Front. And how do you research an organization that does it's not want to be so known? So shadowy. <laughs> I took, uh, <clears throat> I, uh, up at UC Santa Cruz, I took an animal theory class. And there was um, the, a fair bit about the Animal Liberation Front in that that I saw. I also did um, do a, a, a lot of research, enough that I think, you know, that as is the case with many writers, I suspect. I think my name must have been flagged at some point for the suspicious websites I was frequenting. Um, and there are, you know, there are a few YouTube videos. The, the, the Animal Liberation Front certainly does have a public face that, I, that they want seen and that I was able to see. I, I do find it very disturbing, this... I expect that it's not a decision we've made so much as that a decision that capitalism has made for us, that we just will not look at what is involved in the food industry and um, and the research labs and and you know that's true about so many things in uh, in our lives that um, I think you know one of the real lessons learned from Vietnam was that. People shouldn't be shown a body count every day. If you want to conduct a war, if you want the war to continue, then you want to do it in some sort of secrecy from the 
population that uh, is sending their sons and daughters there to fight. And these are just, um, these are very disturbing things for, for me, I think, um, that just generally that we sh if we cannot look at what we are doing, we shouldn't be doing it. And so I dislike very much this, this accommodation that we've made that we just won't look. Yeah, there are lots of scenes in this book that I think are pretty disturbing and have just emotional impact that's beyond the beyond. And uh, I think that to orchestrate those it must have been difficult for you because at, at some point you are highly identified with your characters and the things that your characters do and what happens to them, it, it's, it's tragic. It is. Those are those were very difficult scenes to write, and also difficult scenes to think about. Somebody reading, this this too is a question that is of great interest to me as a writer, and and relates maybe in some ways to what I said earlier about only rereading the books that had some humor in them. That um, that I often ask myself as a writer, and I often ask myself as a reader, how, how much f suffering do I want to do? You know what. What am I prepared to to go through in a book, um, particularly in a fictional book? If I'm, you know, if I'm going to be asked to feel bad about something, <laughs> do I want to do that for some something that someone has merely made up? But um, I think that people's mileage obviously varies on these things, and that uh, in general, um, I am willing to go through quite a lot. But uh, again, I hope that my book does not cause undue suffering in the readers. It, it, no, no, it's a beautiful and and ultimately joyous book with a, a deep tint of <laughs> sadness. In it. I do keep hearing that people have cried, and I've never heard that on any of my books before. Nobody has ever come up and said to me that they cried and I'm hearing this quite frequently on this book. Uh, oh, I'll sign up for that one. <laughs> it was it was it was uh, very very uh intense I thought. And one of the things I thought that you did uh really well in this regard was to create characters who can experience these things but put them in a language and to arrange the plot so that we can experience the wallop, but also have some recovery. And I'd like you to talk about just creating the ebb and flow of the of the tragedy in this book, because there is some. I don't think we're giving anything away. No, there is. But I, I, I have gotten mixed reactions to whether the ending is a sad one or not. Um, I've heard from people who, who think it's a dreadfully sad ending, but I've also heard from people who th think... The ending they thought was coming was much worse than what actually came, and uh, and therefore um, have argued that it's not as sad an ending as it could have been. Which is is my own sort of feeling about it, at least in terms of the ending. It's the happiest ending I could possibly produce and feel that I was being honest and fair to the material. Um, uh, in terms of of sort of 
managing, um, you know, the the reader's emotional response at any moment. Uh, I guess my only real answer is back to the humor portion that um, I tried to <clears throat> to provide moments of gaiety and levity as well, and to use them as needed. This is a novel that is intensely focused on how we communicate with one another, how language works between humans, maybe not so well, how language and how our attempts to communicate with other, other species and asks a very pertinent question as to whether why we should try to teach them our language as opposed to trying to learn theirs. And the vision of scientific hubris, I think, is really fantastic. And you uh, absolutely hone in on this in one segment where you suggest that the experiments performed by humans that use animals tell us a great deal about the humans, but not so much about the animals. It was very surprising to me when I began to research some of the, um, some of the work that had been done particularly with chimps and language, um, you know, a, an experiment that's been ongoing now for quite some time, how late in, in that century or so of, of thinking and work on it, um, how late it was before somebody finally said, you know, if we're interested in how chimps communicate, it actually might be more relevant to look at how they communicate to each other than how well they communicate with us. Um, and uh, again, you know, a, a sort of obvious point, I think, once someone has made it, but um, it says something deep and um, incontrovertible about humans, I think, that it took us so long to, to make that obvious point that um, that when we think about intelligence and when we think about animal intelligence, we are generally looking for those animals who come closest to human intelligence. That um, so you know so chimps are are near the top of our idea of what an intelligent animal is, um, and I guess obviously humans are the very top of what we think an intelligent animal is. And so, you know, in to some ways, the measuring stick um, has already made decisions about what the results will be. It's so interesting, too, that um, as you describe the way that we, we look at, at chimpanzees and we see them growing and we want to see them going one direction, but they, they're just not us. <laughs> And they're never going to be us. And that kind of intelligence, they may... One of the things that I kind of started thinking about as I read this book was that there are a lot of critters on this earth that may be, in many ways, just as intelligent as us and have just as rich and differentiated experiences of their lives as us, but that we can no more comprehend than we can count all the stars in the sky. Yes, that's what I was thinking as well. I mean, we know that crows are very, very smart, but uh, I think crow in intelligence is so alien to human intelligence that, um, you know, we just really have no way of even thinking about it, and certainly no way of of determining um, 
how smart crows are. I mean, the 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 question is, as it turns out, I think nonsensical in the end because we don't really know what it means to be smart in any sort of cross-species way. Now, uh, one of the things that I think that, that I found so interesting about this book was the way that you use language and you discuss language and the way you talk about communication between not just in terms of the words but also in terms of communicating emotions and the importance of emotions in in the job of communication. So I'd like you to talk about the colors that we give to our words when we when we're talking. My father believed very strongly and I um, uh, my father did study intelligence in a particular way, but he believed that animals, including mostly humans, were stimulus re- response sorts of creatures, and that kind of uh, that higher intelligence was mostly a, a masquerade for something much more primal that that are that our decisions and our beliefs and our plans and all of the things that we turn our intelligence to were rooted in our emotions and that, you know, we, we would have an instant reaction to something. It would be an emotional reaction. And then that, that you know, essentially that we rationalize it in some way that makes it sound like a, a, an intelligent, thoughtful decision has been made. That's harder for me to see sometimes when I look in the, at the microcosm of my life and my family and my friends, but it's very, very evident when you look at the macro world of politics and, uh, you know, you watch Congress debating whatever Congress is debating. It's, um, it's, a, it's a jungle scene up there with a lot of chess beating and... Uh, and people uh, who appear to be operating entirely out of emotion. It's surprising there's no no feces flinging because (laughs) I think actually there is. It's just they don't actually ever manage to get it in their hands. (laughs) So words then, you know, become a way of marketing, essentially, your your emotional response in a way to try to um, that makes it not only seem rational and <clears throat> well thought out, but also um, reasonable and uh, something other people should share. One of the great characters in this novel, that there's a lot of really great relationships, uh, mother-daughter, father-daughter, and brother-sister. And I really love Lowell. He's a great character. And what I love most about him is that you managed to care his characterization in absentia. Well, um, I think if you love Lowell, you've been forced into loving him because Rosemary loves him so much. I, I had one reader email me on the subject of Lowell and say, you know, thanks for blaming your five-year-old sister for everything that went wrong with your life. But I love Lowell, and Rosemary loves Lowell, so we'll, we're defending him. But yes, he is he is mostly absent and he is one of those characters who is so angry and so often unpleasant that you know 
every gesture of kindness carries more weight than it would in a person who's simply nice, which is one of the very, very unfair ways in which the world works, that that, that nice people are not valued for their niceness, but um, the niceness of a not nice person is a very valuable thing. I, I think that's a, a corollary from uh, what uh, Rosemary's father says is about, about uh, failure, is that uh, that's we, learn, right. we learn a lot from failure, but it's not well... <laughs> You're not going to get any uh, accolades for it. Yeah. And and Rosemary repeats several times that that people will remember your failures. That um you'll you'll always be noted for where you failed. Right. What you accomplish will never matter so much as where you fail. Yes, right. I and I think that you do a great job of in this book of uh echoing and chorus and repetition. It's very song-like and one of the things that uh one of the courses is is that children don't like unfairness, and they 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 are they're upset by unfairness, and and I think that that's a that enters in deeply into the relationships here. The the jealousy between that exists in sibling relationships isn't something that's often discussed, but I think you do a great job of discussing it here. Thank you. I you know I do think that we all remember I think we all remember this from our own childhoods and um, and it's and we carry it through but probably up until the day we die that at some point somehow something convinced us that the world was supposed to be fair and that it's just a constant shock that it's not and yet you know it never was and it never has been so in many ways the mystery is not um, that the world is not fair, but that we cling so fervently to the idea that it will be and it ought to be. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> now, wait a second. Back up. Are you saying the world is unfair? It's not supposed to be? Oh, no. I missed that memo. <laughs> we all missed it. Uh, one of the things I think that you talk here about the way how we understand one another. And one of the things you bring up at that I think is really great. I love this idea is theory of mind. Would you talk a little bit about theory of mind and how it plays into this narrative? A theory of mind, as I understand it, and I should, you know, uh, whenever we're getting technical about animal studies or, or philosophy, I need to uh, begin by saying I am no expert. Um, I, I have studied these things to write the book. Um, but other people have studied them all their lives, and uh, I may be wrong. But my understanding of theory of mind is it is that it's the ability for one organism to impute decision-making and emotional responses to another. So it's if we keep it between humans, it's one person guessing what another person is feeling and why they are doing the things that they do. And what their motivations are. And, you know, we can only be ever partially sure that we're successfully uh, imputing the, the right emotions and the right decision-making processes. And this is apparently something that develops uh, over time as we're children. So that was one of the interesting things to me, that, that children are very unsophisticated in their ability to 
figure out what another person might do or is thinking or uh, is feeling and that this is something that that most of us learn as we go along and that that if you're very sophisticated you can do many layers of it so you know what one person is thinking because of what they are feeling because of what happened to them yesterday because of what their overall goals are um i read somewhere that the most sophisticated humans can go in seven layers of of um motivation or or emotion as they're dealing in social situations with other people that they can go seven layers deep into somebody else's mind but that that's the human limit and that children start off with with uh, no ability of that at all and that this is of course something that that we need and that we use all the time without being aware that we're doing it in every social situation we're always always part of us is always figuring out what the people that we are dealing with are thinking. At this point, I want to take the interview into a place where those who haven't read the book or don't know what the crux of it is should turn off the interview. (laughs) Uh, Karen, this book, at the center of this book, is a series of experiments that were popular during the 60s, was it, the 70s? How long did they run these experiments? And tell us a little bit about them. The actual experiment on which my book is based took place in the 1930s, and it um, involved a family named the Kellogg's, and they decided to raise a chimpanzee whose name was Gua with their son. So uh, it's about a family named the Kellogg's who decided to raise a chimpanzee simultaneously to raising their infant son. The chimp came in to the family when their little boy was a few months old, and I believe that the experiment lasted about 19 months, and it's very well documented. There are, uh, you know, now on YouTube, home movies that you can see of the the child and the chimp together. Rumor has had it for a number of years that they had planned the experiment to go longer and that they canceled it abruptly when they realized that their son was actually picking up chimp behaviors and equally to the other way around uh, so that he was hooting for food when it arrived and whatever they announced at 19 months that they had learned what they wanted to learn and and returned the chimp to the research facility where she'd been born and I don't really think I'm not really aware since that time of anybody else that has tried to simultaneously raise a chimp with a child but there have been many 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 cases of raising a chimp in a family with other siblings or without other siblings um, and trying to give the chimp a human upbringing in order to see what the chimp's capabilities particularly with reference to language might be if socialized as a human and those a lot of those took place in the in the 1970s when my book takes place in in your novel rosemary proves to have a a sister so talk about creating the character of fern in this novel who's a, a fabulous character thank you um that was you know i was very trepidatious about that because when i sat down to write the book i thought 
I really don't know anything about chimps, and Fern is Rosemary's chimp sister, brought in into the family when Rosemary is only a month old. And I just would, you know, comfort myself with the fact that I didn't know a lot about psychologists. And so I had part of the book down. I just had to research the other part. I have read, I think, uh, as far as I know, every book written about the cross-fostered chimps that there is. Um, I love the term that you come up with in the book, that that the families are all chimping up. And I read, I just read a lot, uh, a lot of other books about chimps as well, chimps in other, in other kinds of settings. And finally, I went to Ellensburg, Washington, where they have a facility built initially, I think, primarily to give Washoe, one of the most famous of the signing chimps, a place to live. Washoe died a few years ago, so she was not there when I went, but there were still three chimps in in the facility, all retired from the science scheme, but but still there and um, being lovingly cared for by the staff. And one of the ways that they fund this obviously expensive facility with with the chimps is by allowing people to come and visit for a fee, but also giving what they call a chimposium. So you can come and spend a day, and you, there are lectures, and you spend a lot of time observing the chimps, and you are told a lot about the chimps, and you get to eat dinner with the chimps, the chimps being at all times on the other side of a bulletproof glass wall. But um, but that was that was wonderful, and that gave me a much better sense of what a chimp fern's age would, at the end of the book, would look like. Because, uh, you know, most of the... Chimp images that we have from the media are of very young chimps. Once they're older, they can't be controlled. And so the picture that we have in, in most of our heads of chimps, I think, are, are young chimps, which Fern is uh, in part of the book, in the, in the part when Rosemary is thinking of their childhoods. Fern is also a child, but um, by the end she has grown up. It's so interesting the way you portray her. I think you do such a fantastic job because you give us a complicated character but never, ever anthropomorphize her. And I think that must have been just remarkably difficult. It it really reads naturally. I really like the way she reads, the way you created her. There's Thank not you. too much there. I mean, there's as much as there needs to be but not a single word more. Well, thank you. I think that I did feel that I had a little bit of wiggle room because in, in terms of what she could do and what she was thinking and, you know, what her capabilities actually were because it was all, it all came to us through Rosemary. And I think that in many ways um, there are things about Fern in the book or bits of memory that Rosemary has where it is possible that Rosemary has overlaid her own filter on what Fern is doing. Rosemary says at one point in the book that she, as a child, she always believed that she knew what Fern was thinking. And in my own head, it's not clear to me if that's true or not, or if, you know, if Rosemary has imagined in that theory of mind way that what Fern is thinking is what Rosemary would be thinking if she were Fern. And so the extent, I mean, you know, the, the whole issue of whether chimps can learn a language 
just remains very controversial. And the book takes no position, I feel. No, no, it, it just offers us uh, a wrenching emotional portrait of a family <laughs> that kind of tears itself apart. And, and this, and what does this, I think, is the disappearance uh, of, of both Fern and, and later Lowell. Lowell yeah. yeah. I think one of the things that interested me, uh, too, is you can't walk away from this book and reading this book and have the same feelings about the way we treat animals. You alluded to this earlier, and you do exactly, I think, create in the reader the motion to think, I've got to do something about this. And I think that that's really that's very difficult to do that. Could you talk, did you have to ratchet stuff back? Did you have to play with what you told it and the way you told it? Because I think a lot of this comes down to the way you, you describe it. Again, you know, because Lowell is uh, an activist in this area, he gave me a, a mouthpiece in the book to say things and not worry so much about about the uh, didacticism because it was his, you know, and, and seemed appropriate to his character. And and the fact that it is also mine um, can be, you know, so, sort of blurred out a bit. Uh, I did get a review, a, a really a wonderful review from Kirkus, where they, they did just make this one mention of my didacticism, although assured readers that they would not mind it, that... <laughs> Um, that that it, that there was um, a little of it, but not so much that the readers would mind. And uh, I did think, what? There's none of it. You're talking about Lowell. You're not talking about me. I think that's true. Well, you do a good job too of of balancing stuff like information, like how. And we've seen this, I think, in California recently. Uh, they want to ban uh, the ability to take photographs in slaughterhouses. Yes, that there are states where it's much further along than it is here in California. Um, but yes, you know, this is again a sense that um, as long as we don't see it, uh, that that it's okay to do it. And and in this case, it's um, you know there are several state legislatures trying to make it in fact illegal to show us what is going on in the, in the slaughterhouses and whatever. However extreme some reactions may seem to people in terms of trying to protect life around us, um, you know, I just, I don't really see how anybody can get behind the idea that we shouldn't even know, uh, that it would be best for everybody if we didn't even know. And, and again, you know, this extends far beyond our treatment of animals, I think, just to our treatment of the world in general and often to our treatment of each other, that... Um, well, you point out that one of the uh, men uh, in the famous, infamous Abu Ghraib photographs worked at a chicken yeah. slaughtering plant. Yeah, and and also, as I point out in the book, this goes back all the way to Thomas More, who felt that uh, the mistreatment of animals would damage our souls in some way. Um, His utopia was not so utopian. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh one of the things, too, this book is about, and I think ultimately this is about how we define what's human. And, and I love the, the line you have that you're looking for a sieve, that we currently have a sieve that excludes dolphins but lets in corporations. 
yes, I think that at the very, very molten core of the book, I am really trying to figure out what the difference between human animals and non-human animals is, if there is some sort of bright line, um, which certainly I've lived long enough to see that line move many times. Uh, you know, when I was a child, I'm uh, humans were the tool-using animals, and then suddenly, you know, we discovered that chimps use tools, and then we discovered that crows use tools, and and now they're just seems to be hardly an animal <laughs> in the world that doesn't use tools and so we've had to jettison that one and um and it's it's also interesting to me how in many of the scholarly articles that I read this dilemma would be um kind of central and yet later in the article there would be an easy assumption you know that animals don't have episodic memories or that you know, animals are incapable of planning for the future. and uh, I'm incapable of planning <laughs> for the future. You just have to look at my shattered remains of my 401k to see that. <laughs> well, I will be looking for the chimpanzee version of we are all completely beside ourselves. <laughs> Somewhere out there, there may be one. I don't exactly sure whether it's a song or a woven set of leaves out in the forest somewhere. I think wherever it is, it will be very hard for us to translate it. I think that's the case. But fortunately, our readers don't have to translate. We are all completely beside ourselves. I've been speaking with Karen Joy Fowler. Her, her new novel is We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves and certainly about this fabulous, powerful, fun-to-read, yet never-forget-it novel. Thank you for joining us, Karen. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.